You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Securing her first role as editor at the tender age of 21, going to the show's garnered Julia Sargemois more attention than she was necessarily ready for. With her trademark hair ever recognizable amongst the street-style parade, it only took one season before being noticed by American Vogue and sitting down for an interview with Lynn Yeager. Today, the British Vogue fashion director can be found styling ad campaigns, magazine covers, activating on social, and with the new release of her collaboration collection for Frame Denim, this multi-hyphenate success seems to be a style she's sticking to. This is Julia Sargemois, and we're talking about what's contemporary now. Miss Julia Sargemois, you are absolutely all the good things, and we have to start at your beginning because it's what we love to do. Was fashion something that you sought out, or was it something that came to you? Well, I've always been interested in fashion from like a very young age. My mum had a market stall in Brixton, mm-hmm. and she works in interiors. So I've always been around color, pattern, texture, and like fashion was what I was always drawn to. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to be a fashion designer when I was younger. Oh, wow. Yeah. Then one of my mom's friends worked for a magazine in Paris, and I used to like always spend summers with them. And then I was like, oh, quite into this like magazine thing. Maybe I want to work for a magazine. And I then ended up studying, doing an art foundation at Campbell and specializing in fashion because I still was like, maybe I want to be in the design world. And then I got an internship at ID and I was only meant to be there for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And I just loved it and fell in love and ended up staying there for a year. So that's kind of like how I got into it. From the very beginning, you've had this hybrid career where you unintentionally became an influencer. And I'm not even sure if at that time we were using the word influencer, but your street style was definitely something that captured the attention of so many and simultaneously created a career as an editor, but also as a public persona in a way. Was that something you were aware of at the time when it was happening or did you even notice? Well, it's a funny thing because alongside studying and stuff, I did do a bit of modeling as well. Mm-hmm. And so that was also a shoehorn for me into the industry. And I was able to see like, what does the stylist do? And that's also when I sort of got interested in that side of the fashion world. Mm-hmm. And the thing with me is I wasn't a very good model at all. Terrible. <laughs> because I was just so not interested in being in front of the camera. I was so much more interested in what was going on behind it. Mm-hmm. I guess I've always fought a sort of forward-facing role. And I think I became fashion editor at Wonderland when I was 21. So I was very, very young. I'd started when I was 19. I actually quit my art foundation and went straight to work age 19. Managed to get an editor role at 21, which meant I was also able to go to the shows. Uh And so this was right at the beginning of sort of street style being a thing. And Uh I remember, I think it was probably my first season. And American Vogue noticed me and... Lynn Yeager interviewed me and they ran a piece about me and it was like street style and all this kind of stuff. I was so reluctant Uh to be part of it in a way because I always wanted to be taken seriously for my work and as a stylist rather than this other side of like I dress myself a certain way, I look a certain way. I always wanted to separate those two things. Mm-hmm. So I never fully embraced it at the beginning. I always fought it. <laughs> but I think it's the same with anything. Sometimes you just have to just stop fighting it, go with the flow a little bit. But for me, there's always been an internal struggle. I want to prove myself with my work. I want to be known for my work. Mm-hmm. 
Well, at that time, it was also somewhat of a faux pas for fashion's elite to use social media or appear to be seeking forward-facing attention. So did you ever feel a sense of judgment around you getting that type of attention? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think people were like, oh, what's that? It's naff or that kind of thing. And I think there's still people that definitely have that opinion. But I think I've just been like, you know what, I'm just going to go with it. But yeah, I think it is a struggle. Some brands love it. Some brands hate it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Yeah, we actually spoke about it a little bit with Gabriella Krefa Johnson as well. And just the mm-hmm. way a modern day editor's role has changed. I mm-hmm. think historically there was a line between talent and editor. And yet now you see this hybrid, which you're a perfect example of as far as partnering up with brands, not just as far as the clients you're working with, but even in the capacity of you playing the role of talent. So what do you think about that now almost more officially becoming a little bit of a new way? I think it's great. And I think it's like, essentially, when you're a stylist, you're creating a world, you're creating a character. And I guess I was reluctant to do that from my own self. Mm -hmm. But like, that is something that I like to do. I love fashion. I love dressing up. I love being different characters as well. Sometimes I'm in a vintage Alaya dress. Other times I'm in a Supreme tracksuit. Like, I don't, (laughs) do you know what I mean? I'm not one of those people that's like, okay, I only wear the row or I only wear Celine. I love those brands, but I also love Supreme. I love Palace. I like to mix it up. Mm-hmm. You know, I sometimes I have different moods. Yeah. And I guess the way I dress expresses that. I was going to say earlier when you were saying that you don't necessarily always feel comfortable leaning into that front of camera role. You do dress in an anything but subtle way, you know, a lot of the time. <laughs> I know. So I would imagine that's hard for people to kind of guess. Comprehend. That, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, it doesn't make yeah. sense. It doesn't make sense. I don't know. It's just because I love fashion. Yeah. It's not necessarily because I'm like oh, look at me, look at me kind of thing. I don't know, it's hard to sort of explain, but it's just because I love fashion and I love dressing up. It makes sense. A lot of us are walking contradictions in more than one way. So you had mentioned that earlier as far as that kind of internal conflict. Have you reconciled that or made peace with it at this point? Yeah, definitely. I think at this point I embrace it much more. Yeah. Yeah, I guess everyone has internal struggles with things like expectations of how people perceive you, how you are. Mm -hmm. I think I have that less because I'm older as well and I just feel more confident and I'm able to lean into my strengths. Yeah, as one should. Yeah. You mentioned Celine, which I believe I read somewhere was somewhat of an influence in terms of what you had done with your apartment. So let's get into the way fashion (laughs) or style permeates the entirety of your life, including your living space. Yeah, so I like love interiors. The old Celine store had like patchwork marble. So I like really wanted to do a patchwork marble idea for my kitchen island. So I, I did that. That's another thing. Even when I was a kid, I remember when I did my first modeling job. I was really young, like maybe 15 or something. And I wanted to spend the whole paycheck on this garden egg chair. It's like vintage chair. <laughs> At like 14, I was already like, I'm really into this. I don't know. For me, my surroundings are really important to how I feel about things. And aesthetically, like it's important that when I'm in my house it represents me fully as well the great thing about being able to do renovation is that you can choose everything even though it was very difficult (laughs) yeah I remember it took you quite a while no it took me so long because it was like in the middle of COVID basically Mm -hmm. halfway through so that added a lot of time but you know in the end it gave me time to make decisions in a slower way because it wasn't finished I think it's one of those things once it's done you don't really think about the pain you're just like okay now I'm in the house and like, it's great yeah. but I was actually saying the other day to my friend I kind of want to redecorate and take all the furniture out and start from scratch oh my god I know I know I was like I feel like a change 
Do you subscribe to magazines like Architectural Digest or anything from that space? Or is it just a instinctual general passion? Yeah, I used to, because my mum was a textile designer for Designers Guild. Yeah. And so she'd always have all of these interior magazines. So I'd always be looking at those as well. I'd always be looking at like Vogue or ID, Dazed, and then like interior magazines as well. So I think that was always part of my interest. I think for me, I like to just express myself in different ways. I love interiors. I love food. I guess they're all creative things. At the end of the day, it becomes quite symbiotic if you really pay close enough attention. Yeah. And the whole shoot that you had done that kind of reminded me of the idea when you had said Celine was covered by British Vogue, right? You gave them access to your house? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was really funny, actually, because every time like during the pandemic, we'd have a Zoom or something. And it was like, is your house finished yet? He's like so excited to see it Mm -hmm. and to run it in the magazine. But are those examples of things that you're expected to provide or give access to as the fashion director of British Vogue? I mean, they have been very modern as far as their approach with their staff and the way they put them in front of camera. No, it's not definitely not an expectation. I think Edward loves to involve everyone. Mm-hmm. And obviously I have my page every month as well where mm-hmm. I like pick my favorite things. And that's where I brought that's like interiors, beauty, fashion. So that's also always a mix. So I think that makes sense for him as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, having been in magazines as long as you have, obviously there's been an evolution across all mm. of them. I think British Vogue in particular has very much been at the forefront of some of those changes just in terms of what Edward has wanted to bring back to the magazine and kind of add on to it. So For you being on the inside, what has that been like in ways that might differ from past experiences at other titles? I mean, working with Edward is just amazing. Mm -hmm. He's so supportive. He's so encouraging. He gives me a lot of freedom and guidance. It's actually the most straightforward magazine role that I've worked in. Oh, wow. In what way as far as comparisons? Not necessarily having to call anyone else out, but just as far as how the process works. I think it's just very clear and direct and Mm -hmm. you submit your ideas and then they commission the ones they like. I think also because it's so organized, everything's done right at the beginning of the season. Everything's planned. And I think sometimes with the more independent magazines, it's much more ad hoc Mm -hmm. and less planned. So then it becomes a little bit less organized and they're much smaller teams and things like that. So I think all of those things also come into effect. Mm-hmm. Doing a Vogue shoot, it's smooth, it's like enjoyable. You can focus on the creativity and that's an amazing thing. You have amazing opportunities. You know, you get the best clothes, the best models, the best photographers. Having come from, say, at Wonderland that wasn't particularly a respected magazine, having to sort of really find people that hadn't done anything, mm-hmm. that is a different setup. Of course. Even in the marketplace, British Vogue is very much considered premium or marquee in terms of covers and prime real estate and the careers of talent and models. What role do you think a magazine cover still plays in our culture today? I think now social media is such a big thing. It's probably less because I think that Especially with celebrity covers, I feel as though celebrities don't need the magazines as much as they once did. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I feel like a British Vogue cover is iconic. Absolutely. Everyone wants one. (laughs) And they always do sort of make an impact, which especially nowadays isn't so easy. They really do. Even like the Beyonce cover, that was incredible. I think it's just because Edward is so inspiring. His ideas are so amazing that it just translates so well. Yeah, no, he definitely has a clear vision. And I think that is actually incredibly 
tangible to the general audience, even people who aren't necessarily looking for the same nuanced details that those of us within the space might be looking at. It just really seems to resonate. So going back to what you just mentioned in terms of celebrities valuing covers or needing them as much as they once did, obviously in those particular examples, a magazine cover is a sort of badge of honor, even if its numbers aren't necessarily going to equate something that they would get on their own channels if they have that large of a following. So as a consultant working with brands, what ways has that changed for you considering what that looks like as far as the space for content, where to get a share voice in the overall conversation that's happening across everything? I think the interesting thing now is I think it's so broad Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to focus on one thing. Of course. So I think that's where I think brands, I guess they spread themselves over different content so much more than they used to because they have to. And I think the ways of marketing is so different now. So it's hard to say which one would be the one that you would focus on more. Are you involved in those conversations when they're asking for your perspective on a collection? Do they also want to understand what your viewpoint is on marketing strategies or where things should live or what should be considered when making the imagery? I think less so strategy, but there's opinions on models or the teams and things like that, but less so on placement or marketing. It's interesting because you hear usually offline, but conversations around what actually has the greatest visibility and a lot of the time it's supplemental content and not even necessarily the hero imagery. And I don't know if that's the result of what media buys look like today, foot traffic or magazine subscriptions, or if it's just the fact that most people will always engage things first on their phone. So suddenly social becomes that lead strategy, right? Yeah, exactly. Especially with the whole influencer thing. I do think even from just having conversations with brands, they're like, you know, if I put this on like a certain influencer, it's going to sell out more so than, do you know what I mean? It is weird in terms of direct consumer buying. Maybe it just makes the brands, especially say a luxury brand, it makes it maybe more relatable than seeing it in like a campaign format. If you see a bag in a campaign and then you see the bag on an influencer, maybe you could relate more to the person because you feel like you're part of their world you follow them they post and have opinions about things that you might share as well you feel more of a connection i'm just saying possibly this is why you know no but that brings up a really good point of relatability which i think we've seen manifest in so many different ways when it comes to fashion as far as the aesthetics behind campaigns and their styles of photography or like you're talking about partnering up with particular people who connect with a broader audience. Even if you look specifically within the modeling space, you have very particular careers who are considered iconic within fashion and they've had every directional cover consistently for a number of years. They're always in really incredible advertising. They have this sort of for lack of a better term, cool kid or about them. Uh And yet if you were to stand in Union Square and show someone a picture of them, nobody would know who they are, you know. And then on the flip side, you have the reverse of that where there is a whole different type of talent working within the fashion space that is more publicly recognizable and also hitting some pretty key benchmark accolades in terms of their jobs within fashion. But it does always beg that question, how significant of a contribution does relatability make when you're building a picture, either for a magazine, advertising, uh, whatever. I always feel like it needs to be both. I think mm-hmm. you need to keep the old school way of doing it as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then bring in these ideas. 
the newer ideas here and there. I think it's a combination of both because I think all of a sudden, if say you stop doing the campaigns and then you were just focusing on influencers, then I don't think that would make sense either. You can't go just fully into this new world. Mm -hmm. There always needs to be a balance with the old. Mm -hmm. Sure, we'll call it the hold for the purpose of this conversation. But I also yeah. think a lot of the inspiration well, comes the established, from... the established. Yeah. There are particular examples where I think the creatives such as yourself behind fashion are genuinely inspired by them as individuals, what they represent. Periodically, their beauty tends to be a little bit more quirky uh. or nuanced or unique in some particular type of a way. And that kind of informs the general beast or machine of it all, right? And I think with that momentum, and correct me if you don't agree, you then are able to put wind beneath the wings of more mass culture examples of talent. And that balance is somehow struck as a result, no? Yeah, no, definitely. You've hit that out on the head. It's all about the balance between the two. And if you look at those that are trying to break into this space today. We recently had a conversation with someone about how historically there were so many people willing to work for free just to get a chance to be a part of this industry because it had such sort of mystery around it and it wasn't necessarily a space you could break into through academic achievement or buying your way in, although obviously those who were financially (laughs) in a good place were able to do it much easier because you weren't always paid. And when you were, you weren't paid necessarily well. Whereas there's a different relationship because it has been in some ways demystified or democratized in a lot of ways. And so just for the sake of those of our listeners who obviously are fans of this space and potentially want to find ways they can more effectively break into it. What would you say the benefits of some of the changes we've seen have been? Yeah, I think, I mean, when I started, definitely there was a lot of bike parking for free, mm-hmm. which I did quite a long time. <laughs> and yeah. I was lucky because I lived in London. I lived at home with my mom. I did my modeling on the side, which meant I could make good money without taking too much time out from what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I did strike a good balance because like, I've been making my own money since I was 16. I didn't have any financial support from my parents or anything apart from obviously when I was living at home. Uh But I think thankfully now it's different and there's mentoring matters which I've been part of, which is amazing. And that's something that pairs you up with people in the industry that mentor you for free, which I think is an amazing platform because you can learn so much from someone obviously who's already established. I think there's more programs like that. I think people are much more willing to give back in terms of time as well, Uh which I think is great. And also working for free doesn't exist anymore, yeah. which also is important because otherwise it becomes fashion is elitist mm-hmm. and it has been very elitist. And I think that's the only way that it will change is if people are paid properly from the beginning. So I think it's important. What I loved about ID when I worked there is that it was like anti-establishment, which I love. There was that freedom and we were quite young and I was there at the same time as Max Permain, actually. So it was me and Max Permain working there and we were given shoots to do. We were like interns or fashion assistants and we were given pages and shoots. And I did my first shoot for ID. I probably was like 19, 20 with like Tyrone Le Bon, you know, it was a sort of fun experience and time. And I think that that is maybe gone, though. In what way? I feel like that structure is gone. I feel like maybe because of social media, 
there's other outlets, you know, because then we had like Facebook, but there was no Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It didn't exist. Yeah. I feel like now there's so many different ways of getting into the industry. There's so many different ways of getting noticed. There's so many different ways of building your career that aren't necessarily so prescriptive as they once were. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exciting. I think that's interesting. And I think I don't necessarily know what those are because I know how I got to this point. But the interesting thing about young generations is they make their own new ways of doing things and that's what I'm interested in seeing of course another type of change that I've started to notice is within the artist representation space I see a lot of successful photographers and even stylists changing what that setup looks like for them and bringing certain things in house and Uh. um, not necessarily pursuing or staying you know at legacy agencies which of course historically were always the place everyone wanted to be so Uh. you've got a little bit of an interesting setup yourself in terms of a studio manager in London you have a different type of an agency in New York so I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about the reasons behind the way you've chosen to set up your business. Over the pandemic, I think I was just rethinking so many things and really reflecting on so many things in my life. And one of those things was the representation and how I wanted to move forward in terms of having an agency or not. Mm -hmm. I made a decision to go in-house and have my own studio manager and agent. Mm -hmm. And what I really like about it is it gives me full autonomy over my career and my choices and I feel like it's all my decision. I think sometimes when you're part of an agency you end up doing stuff you don't necessarily want to do. Mm-hmm. There's definitely benefits of being with an agency, of course, because I think they may bring in work or pair you up with other people at the agency and those kind of things. So being like out on your own, it can be scary. Like maybe at the beginning, I was a bit worried about it, but I actually feel more empowered having my own thing. That was what I was going to ask you was obviously there must be a moment of trepidation around stepping Uh, out from underneath the banner of something that could ensure you're a part of particular conversations or protect you from politically complex conversations with a client. Who knows? But it sounds like you've passed through that. It's definitely not just you. It's something I've seen happen more and more. And I was trying to understand as an outsider what the reasons behind that were. And a lot of the time when I've spoke to certain friends about their own experiences, it's similar to your response and just that they felt as though it was better to set up shop on their own in a way, unless they, of course, felt that sense of alignment with the representation, which apparently is more challenging than it once was. Yeah, I think that probably is as well. It's like it needs to be right. You know, I might go back to an agency at some point, never say never. But I think for me as well, I do enjoy the business side of things as well. Mm-hmm. I think some creatives maybe are not so interested in that, but I definitely am. It's something that I enjoy as well. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like I am running my own business mm-hmm. and it really feels like I am because I have all the infrastructure of it as well. So I'm learning about that too. It's beneficial in more ways than one. I love that. Yeah. I definitely think the gig economy is growing and more people are putting a bit more of an entrepreneurial hat on. As our closer, given that the show is about what's contemporary now, I did want to pose that question to you about culture, what you think primarily informs it today. What is contemporary now to you? I was thinking about this question. Uh And, you know, I think it's an attitude. I think people are more open. People are kinder to each other. People are more open to different types of people, like even in the fashion industry and stuff like that. And I think that to me is the best thing is like moving forward being more inclusive and to me that's what is contemporary now is an attitude is an openness is a kindness which I think 
the fashion industry needed. It really did. It really yeah, did. Yeah, that was something that was lacking. Do you feel as though it was a response to everything that we've seen for the past two years and change? Or do you feel like it was just an inevitable evolution? I think, honestly, COVID sped it up. Mm-hmm. I think it was already going there. You know, like the female gaze mm. when that was becoming a thing? Because mm-hmm. I was working with Zoe Gertner and Harley. And so I think that female perspective was a big shift in the industry because there were so few female photographers. So I think that was a big change. And maybe that was the beginning of it. And then it sort of all sped up. From my perspective of it, from when I started, I feel like that's when it really started to shift, you know? Yeah. Now, to me, it's a combination of the two where it seemed inevitable and at a certain point had to swing the other way as a kind of pendulum of culture. But Uh. I think the points you're making tie in in a very applicable way. Thank you for everything. You're such a doll. I always enjoy speaking with you and really appreciate you taking the time for us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of the Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes. And for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com. 